From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, June 24th. Today, the Supreme Court overturned the fundamental right to abortion established nearly 50 years ago in Roe v. Wade. This reversal leaves states free to drastically reduce or even outlaw abortion. Thirteen states, including Utah, have restrictive trigger laws on the books. Caroline Ballard, with our partners at KUER, spoke to University of Utah law professor Ronell Anderson-Jones last month about this very scenario. Utah has a trigger law passed in 2020. A trigger law is a law passed by a state in anticipation of the possibility of a change in constitutional jurisprudence. It is, just like its name suggests, triggered by the Supreme Court opinion and then moved into effect by the certification that the Supreme Court opinion has happened. A number of states across the country in recent years passed these, looking ahead to the possibility that Roe versus Wade or some piece of the Roe doctrine um, would be reversed by the Supreme Court, and Utah is one of them. What trigger law or laws are on the books, and how would they play out in Utah? This law in Utah um, would make nearly all abortion at any stage of pregnancy illegal, with three exceptions that are crafted to be quite narrow. Uh, The first is that the abortion is necessary to avert uh, the death or risk of serious, substantial, irreversible impairment of major bodily function to the pregnant woman. The second is that a fetus has a lethal defect or a a brain abnormality that's uh, uniformly diagnosable. And two, um, maternal health doctors agree to this. And the third is rape or incest, uh, but only if it's reported to Uh, law enforcement or proper authorities. So three exceptions, but um, anything outside of those exceptions, Utah's law um, triggered by the hand down of a reversal of Roe would essentially make abortion uh, illegal across the state. How would that translate to one person getting an abortion? What would it make that look like? Most people seeking abortions would not be able to do so under the new trigger law. And this would be the case in a number of states in across the country that have uh, similar laws on the books. And so the change is going to be swift and it's going to be um, significant. And it looks to be something that would be uh, quite immediate. Will there be a legislative or legal reaction in Utah Presumably, the legislature in 2020 enacted the trigger law on the assumption that it was the preference of the voting majority in the state. So um, I'm not sure that there's a remaining legislative debate that we we see on the immediate horizon in Utah. Uh, Instead, the debate may be a policy debate or um, wider dialogue about uh, what the next steps look like in this new, very changed constitutional terrain. Ronell Anderson-Joan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. That's University of Utah law professor Ronell Anderson-Jones speaking with KUER's Caroline Ballard last month about what happens in Utah if the Supreme Court overturns the fundamental right to abortion. That reversal came today. The court's decision eliminates the federal standard regarding abortion access. This allows 13 states, including Utah, to restrict abortion using trigger laws already on the books. Other states will protect the right to have an abortion, including Colorado and Oregon. 
This week was the summer solstice. That's the longest day of the year, and it has significance for different cultures around the world. In our region, there's a growing number of observers that find a connection with this time and some rock art panels. The study of these interactions is called archaeoastronomy, or cultural astronomy, or ancient astronomy. And the field relies on the work of amateurs scouring the Southwest for examples. Justin Higginbottom reports. Rory Tyler wasn't in Moab long before he had a hunch about the snake. He had moved from Oregon in 1993 and soon after hiked with friends to see the 20-foot-long petroglyph. That first trip was on the equinox. It's the time of year when day and night are about equal length. The group wondered if the sun that day would hit the panel differently, but nothing happened. Still, Tyler had a feeling, and he returned on the summer solstice. That's the longest day of the year. And about 11 o'clock in the morning, sun comes over the cliff above it, and uh, there's a kind of a curved fracture. It's called a conchoidal fracture on the snake, where the snake's face is. And the light uh, comes over the cliff, touches one edge of that fracture, and then spreads across it and forms a perfect arrowhead of light about a foot and a half high right on the snake's face. The whole thing lasts about two minutes. If you miss it, that distinct arrowhead of light fades into a smear. And it just smacked us between the eyes. It was so amazing. And then we started to talk about it and drib and drab, and it word got out. And by uh, last year, there were close to 100 people a year making that four-mile hike in the middle of the uh, summer up to that up to that site. In a twist of calendrical fate, Tyler first got into archaeoastronomy, what he likes to call ancient astronomy, at the beginning of the field study in the southwest. He happened to be hiking in Chaco Canyon in the 70s when Anna Sophia first recorded the astronomical importance of the Sun Dagger petroglyph. Sophia was a volunteer documenting rock art in the area when she noticed a dagger of light that bisects the petroglyph spiral at the solstices and equinox. It was the spark that kicked off similar research and what some call rediscoveries. After coming across Sophia and her work, Tyler was hooked. He began visiting rock art at those necessary times of the year. But if I don't go, I just kick myself. Say, well, I could have gone. It might have happened. And I feel disappointed in myself that I didn't even try. So for a long, long time, it was just, I got to go. Because if I don't, whether or not it occurs, it'll just make me feel bad about myself. Since the snake, he's documented events at other sites. A goose that lays a golden egg in arches. A panel in Hidden Valley that comes alive with the sun. And that's kind of what I've been doing here in Moab, you know, going out to places like the snake. I've been up to, I can't go there anymore. I'm too old and broke down, but I've been up there over 200 times. Hidden Valley. Hidden Valley is amazing. It's it's one giant calendar. I just figured that out a few years ago. That's not in any textbook you'll ever find. It, It will be in a few years. He has a website where he documents his findings, and he's gained followers in the mission. He took around half a dozen people on 25 hikes between this last fall and spring equinox. As a consequence, there's a whole cadre of uh, Moab locals now who are much more highly educated and going out and doing that kind of stuff. Mary Grand is one of those cadre, although she's based in Grand Junction. 
During this year's summer solstice, she was at Hoven Weep National Monument in southeastern Utah. Around 25 people stood in front of a boulder, just enough of an overhang to shade its spiral petroglyphs. You know, got there in plenty of time and sat, sat in the cold morning. It was a wonderful cold morning. And just to see this light start to edge through and, and watch it bisect these circles from two different directions. It sounds like something that's so simplistic, and maybe that's part of the attraction. She doesn't know what brought the visitors there that morning, just like she doesn't know the intents of those ancient artists. But she does know what draws her to events like this. To have that kind of accuracy, to have that power of observation on a rock face, I just think it's a glorious thing in the world that we live in. We're all so fast moving, you know, every day is another day. But to um, see that someone took the time and the observation to create that, and then just think about how many generations of people like myself have sat there and, and watched that and went, yes, the... The earth is still turning, the sun is still coming up, and it's a, you know, it's a glorious day. John Lundwall is a co-founder of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. He says archaeoastronomy in the southwest is still a growing field, slowly carving out academic respect. It's gone beyond just studying sunrise and sunset at, at a standing stone to a wider field of exploration as to how astronomy is used in, in basically any feature of ancient culture. His group's focus has been on the Fremont civilization. They work with the Utah Rock Art Research Association and archaeologists to catalog their findings. They're the first to do it. Lundwald just got back from a solstice trip in the Uinta Basin. He took time-lapse photos of a panel with a figure possibly wearing a triangular headdress. So it's one week a year. The sunlight spills through a little crack in the opposing canyon wall and a V of light comes down and fills the figure's headdress perfectly. He says they've looked at hundreds of panels so far and they've found six that have solar interactions. He says there's an important space for amateurs in this work. It's actually very time consuming to go through each of these sites. We we have to rely. There's tens of thousands of sites. We have to rely on people living in the local area who have seen something because there's just too many sites. His findings have been published in the peer-reviewed American Indian Rock Art Journal, but he says mainstream respect isn't always easy. We've submitted to peer-reviewed journals and we've gotten very rude responses. <laughs> There's a common criticism that is made against any work analyzing rock art, not just archaeoastronomy. One of the responses is, uh, oh, we don't interpret rock art, and neither can you, so go away. And, and we don't try to interpret rock art, uh, you know, because it is very subjective, and there's far more that, that we'll never know, right? So we, we go and are just looking at the measurements and the interactions. I mean, it's hard not to interpret some of it at some times. Theorizing a purpose to rock art can even be offensive to some, including the descendants of those civilizations responsible for the work. What Rory and Moab knows for sure is what happens to him when he's there for an event. Here's what happens to me. Once I know something like that is happening, I'll go back like a second time, third time, fifth time, and every time I go, I'm like waiting 
is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? You can't help but feel apprehensive as to whether or not it's going to happen. And then when it does happen, there's this sense of relief. And I mean, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. Yeah, there it is. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And that as a human being, that tells me that the cosmos is in order. And no matter what my personal problems may or may not be, the universe is doing exactly what it should be doing. And I feel a certain sense of security and, uh, and joy, actually. You know, it's, 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 it's all working. He says there's still so much to learn, so many more rediscoveries. He recommends the wise observer to visit every panel at every reasonable season. But he has a warning. You start doing that, and the sun might take over your life. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Now, let's head to the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Southeast Utah is a hub for biocrust research, and a lot of this important research is being done by women. Doug McMurdo with the Times Independent highlights their profile on this subject. It is a story about biocrust and how vitally, critically important that is to Southeast Utah and the world, as a matter of fact. Um, mm. Holds down the dust and the wind, and it uh, just has living organisms, little ecosystems in, in every little uh, mm. section where you see biocrust. And we know that it's being impacted by tourism, accidental and deliberate um, trampling. Um, But what's the most interesting part of this story is the uh, women scientist. The subhead is a women-powered world of Moab's biocrust research. And it's a very fascinating story if you if you care about these things but it's even more fascinating when you, when you look at the fact that this is a group of women scientists that are conducting really really important research into biocrust i mean jane Belknap, she is famous for her biocrust research mm-hmm. and was uh, recently not recently but i think within the last year was yeah. uh, um, mm-hmm. elected to the national academy of sciences mm-hmm. so these aren't lightweight scientists. They're actually doing serious research and coming up with um, uh, good results, or at least results that help us understand the importance Mm -hmm. of BioCrest and and what it means. The reason why I brought this up and why I like this story so much is right after I was finished editing it, I came across a story uh, from, I believe it was The Economist, about how women scientists are not receiving the the respect and the attention that Mm -hmm. they deserve for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I found it a little bit ironic that here we are promoting women scientists um and and jane obviously Mm -hmm. uh, what a rare because that's a boys club the Mm -hmm. national academy Mm -hmm. of sciences so anyway they're doing good stuff out there so this article in the times independent um that was put together by reporter sophia fisher it profiles biocrust research specifically but it also profiles women who have been involved in this research um, in the Moab area. Is yes, that right? absolutely. Yeah. And it's a really, it's a critical research because, as Sophia explained it to me as we were discussing 
the story, BioCrest helps look at how the world is reacting to climate change. And it could, uh, in the long mm-hmm. run, help us uh, prepare for it. it. It's just it's a crazy world right now, as we all know. And, and this, these are all positive advances. That's an interesting point, too. Like, the BioCrest research isn't just important related to our local ecosystem, but it could, you know, have some predictors for climate change as a whole. Globally. Okay, so more, of course, in the Times Independent. Anything else to mention about this piece before we move on, Doug? Um, I think I covered it as well as I'm qualified to. <laughs> sure. It's a big it's a big article. So moving on to a, an article uh, you put together, Doug, on noise. Uh, this is inside the paper. There was yet another workshop on noise. There, there was, and um, it was a quiet meeting about noise. Everybody was respectful. <laughs> sure. the, the comments were thoughtful. Uh-huh. Whether you're a, a, a OHV business owners, mm-hmm. um, people who are whose lives have been impacted uh, every day, every hour of every day, mm-hmm. I think that um, it was. I think it was a positive thing. And they they have this noise working group. They came up with a lengthy list of priorities, um, <laughs> ranging from high priorities to low priorities. I, I mentioned in the article that that one of the uh, highest priorities is education and advertising. Mm-hmm. I think what came out of this that I think is going to be the best news for people who are impacted is uh, House Bill 180 is going to require everybody who drives an OHV to take a course yeah. before they can. They're working out the curriculum right now, but they've also made it very clear that it's unlawful to alter or modify your exhaust to make mm-hmm. your, your already loud machine even louder. And both advocates for OHV use and uh, people, f- advocates for quiet neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, are really behind this. Uh, Christina Sloan, the county attorney, is really behind it. And Kent Green, um, as we all know, is a huge, uh, mm-hmm. I, I believe he's a retired business owner from an OHV company. Mm. He had very thoughtful comments and good things to say. His biggest concern, and I think it's a concern that uh, is fair, is that um, don't just target OHVs, target semi-trucks mm-hmm. and motorcycles and uh, Sloan. Uh, she says that's why we refer to them as OHVs rather than UTVs or mm-hmm. ATVs because it does include noise. Any, right. any machine that makes noise is going to be uh, um, targeted. Uh, the problem, of course, is always enforcement. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're already... Uh, short on law enforcement officers. Moab City Police are, have been chronically short mm-hmm. of officers, and that means that uh, deputies need to patrol more in town to help cover mm-hmm. town. So it's just going to be a difficult thing. But the sheriff's office is well aware of it, and I think they are willing to do things. My only worry, my only concern about this workshop were comments made about official organizations that represent OHV users, they would not meet with the county without their lawyer. And so that's, that's a bit demoralizing. And what's also demoralizing for me is, you know, these heads of these organizations, they come into Moab or they talk to us in the media and they're very, um, they're very conciliatory and they're, Mm -hmm. they're very friendly and they're all about doing the right thing and they don't want to impact us. But then you look on their website or their Facebook social media postings, and it's like, screw Moab. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't care. And it's really hard to build a trusting relationship when people mm-hmm. talk out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, I mean, this issue has just gotten so bitter at times. It really, really has. It's all relative. You never, you never really feel 
the pain until it's your own ox that gets gored. Mm-hmm. I lived in Spanish Valley when all the problems came up, and, and there are o, uh, OHVs traveling down Spanish Valley Drive, but I was two-tenths of a mile off the road. Mm-hmm. I was secluded. I, was, I had uh, <laughs> a nice little setup. Then I moved to Fourth East. Thank God I have a swamp cooler that's so loud. <laughs> An old swamp I, cooler. I wouldn't hear a bomb go off in my bathroom. So, uh, yeah, it, ha- it has affected my quality of life. You know, it is, I will say this workshop was interesting. Like you said at the top, you know, it was a quiet workshop on noise. But it did provide some insight for anybody listening as to the strategies that the county is trying. And there are multiple strategies. Right. You know, not only education, but um, legislative lobbying, enforcement, like you said, like all these different um, tactics that they're trying to use now. Well, Doug, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you feel like is worth mentioning about I, the noise I, issue? Uh, not the noise issue, but I would like to talk about a story that we have um, on, on B1. Okay. And, and that is um, to come full circle back to climate change and the importance of Biocrest. Um, Fawns are dying at an alarming rate up in the book cliffs. Oh, wow. They cannot find a cause. All of the um, uh, post-mortem work that scientists have done can't find a cause. Their best guess is that it's uh, heat exhaustion. But this has never happened before. They've never seen anything like it. We have a professor from Brigham Young University who's studying it. And, of course, folks from uh, sportsmen and folks with uh, DWR are also looking into this. But it's really um, a sad thing. And they're doing quite a bit of work to monitor it. Um, But, again, I I think um, we can point the finger at climate change for this because it is hotter earlier and it is drier you said the scientists best guess is heat exhaustion for the deaths of these fawns specifically in the book cliffs so this monitoring program has been around for a a couple years is is that correct yes since uh, 2019 and um as reported in the times independent um the scientists are not observing any like bite marks or um lost limbs yeah they've they've absolutely ruled out predators and only one of the deer has showed signs of disease and i I do want to um address the the photo above the headline mm-hmm. um, those fawns are sedated they're not deceased they've been collared so they're part of the monitoring program i mean under the photo it does say sedated fawns yes so. i made a, I made a point yeah. of that doug mcmurdo editor at the times independent subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com Noise is a big topic here in Moab, and this week's workshop on strategies to curb it was covered by the Moab Sun News. Maggie McGuire tells us their approach to this subject. You know, of all issues that we're talking about locally, this one, you know, you might be frustrated by the conversation, but you can't say that this conversation is not being had. Everyone's going real deep on this. While um, at this particular noise workshop, there were like a ton of ideas thrown out. Um, me personally, as like a, a private individual, I get like very frustrated with that. But that's also like amazing that, you know, so many people in our community are engaging with this, um, with this issue on so many different levels, whether it's scientific or law enforcement or legislation or, you know, culture or, you know, personal like neighborhood relationships. Like it's like a wildly vital conversation right now. Like you said, in this workshop, there were a lot of ideas thrown out there. Ideas from, you know, local citizens who were just speaking during the citizens to be heard portion of the workshop. And then ideas from local government. 
Um, any any to pick out from the Sun's coverage of it? Well, it seems like at least for the county commission and some, you know, uh, uh, local electeds and officials is that currently um, increased messaging um, and communication is sort of the, the place that local electeds and officials kind of want to put um, staff time and energy into. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, issues, but you know, you can understand that, you know, that's one that you can take action on fairly, fairly quickly, um, and have some really visible um, products from that from that investment of time. So it sounds like that's sort of the direction that they're they're looking at right now. Right. And like, without expected blowback, having an educational campaign is something that has been least controversial of the methods taken. Yeah, it's fairly inoffensive. And you know, it doesn't seem like there's unexpected uh, legal or policy challenges with that one. Whereas a lot of these other ideas um, that are more structural um, oftentimes have, you know, they're not impossible, but they're going to take a lot more footwork. Exactly. Speaking of, there are still plans on the table for lobbying at the state legislature, trying to get our representatives, our state representatives um, on the ground here in Moab to um, listen to the noise and listen to local politicians. Anything to mention in that realm? Um, Just that it's going to be a very long road, you know, Um, doing any sort of lobbying is, you know, a multi-year process. And the interesting and sort of unusual place of Moab within um, the political culture of the state as a whole, I think is um, especially interesting and especially frustrating for, for those of us who live here. I just really relate and I'm fascinated by, if you want to think about like one of those like, uh, you know, mind maps of all of these like various ways of trying to discuss or address this mm-hmm. issue it's just so interesting seeing like these little roadblocks and challenges to, to each of these ways of, of moving forward, whether that's land use codes or the limits of science yeah. <laughs> or uh, political culture. It's just kind of fascinating. I think there's a really good board game to be had out of this if someone wants to sit down and design it. Hey, that could be your second job. <laughs> Well, more, of course, on the noise workshop and noise issues in the Moabs and news this week. Um, there's another interesting article I was hoping that you could highlight that people can find in this week's edition related to a historic cabin. Tell me tell me about this one. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about this off and on that it's really fun as a journalist or a reporter or anyone sort of going out into the community where you're doing work on one story and it sort of turns into something else. That's like a great pleasure. and. A few of our readers had contacted us um, about a small historic cabin um, that was on a piece of property that had recently been purchased for development. They were concerned about, you know, what's going to happen with this cabin. So um, our staff reporter, Rachel Fixon, sort of went out to just do a little bit of research on that. And the piece actually turned into kind of a really interesting profile of Moab resident Mark Beeson, who is a prolific collector of historic items from Moab's history. So 
the property in question, like the cabin sits, like it's visible from the road. And Moab local Terrence Thompson just bought the property and he's going to put some workforce housing on part of the lot. But, well, you know, when we reached out and talked to him happily, he said he plans to leave this particular cabin intact so that it um, is sort of celebrating Moab's history. And it's an informal museum. And within that cabin is going to be Mark Beeson's collection. And Rachel Fixon um, was able to go out with Mark himself and with Moab Museum curator Taryn Barish and take a look at some of like the interesting documents that he has from, from Moab's history and talk to him about his collection and kind of get a little bit of insight on folks who do, I would say, almost like folk history or, or not quite genealogical history, but definitely related. What kind of stuff is in his collection? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? There's documents. There's a lot of, um, I would say, ephemera from uh, uh, generations back. You know, Mark Beeson himself is a sixth generation Moabite. So he also had like some personal relationships to these items. And he's been able to do a lot of that work that that historians and genealogists do of trying to piece together from documents. You know, what's the timeline here? Like we, we might know like an event, but where did that event fall sort of in Moab's history and culture and all of that you know one of the things that I thought was really funny is that you know he had mentioned that one of the challenges that he runs into is not just continually wanting more documents which of course you always do they fill in all of those little holes but also um, the convention of renaming children <laughs> in Moab's families the same name so mm-hmm. sometimes you'll have a document and it'll say you know, he pointed out that he's the third Mark Beeson in, in his family. Mm-hmm. So he's continually finding these documents with folks' names, but he's like, but which one? <laughs> so this property in question in Moab, um, there was a concern from the community that the ca- the historic cabin on the site um, would be torn down. But in fact, the Moab News found out that um, it will be preserved and preserved with um, Beeson's, you know, folk collection. Is there anything else that you want to say about this um, piece? Just that, like I say, sometimes when we go after stories, you know, I had in mind a much um, more straightforward news story, you know, local cabin, this and that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with just the facts. And I love that we're in a community that every time you scratch something that could just be like a report or something that's kind of like cold and factual, like all of these fascinating and interesting characters come out and we just have like a really interesting and rich community here. It's a joy. Maggie, before you go, I'm hoping you could highlight one more piece in the Mubs and News about an artist, an artist who will reside here in an artist in residence program. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know about like this pretty interesting residency, an arts residency in Moab. It's through the Moab Art and Recreation Center and Moab Arts, and it's the Moab Arts Reuse Residency. So this is specifically focused on artists who want to address recycling or the waste stream or are grappling with that issue. It includes a partnership with the Canyonland Solid Waste Authority and Wabi Sabi Thrift Store to sort of access, you know, where is trash or discarded items going in our community. Um, So I think it's like a really fascinating way of starting that conversation um, from the perspective of, of art. 
So who is this artist that's going to come for their next residency? So beginning in July, it's going to be Justin Tyler Tate. He's an installation artist. Um, and he's heading here actually just off of a residency in Norway. Um, he's done quite a lot of um, work in particularly like kind of the Scandinavian area where he got his master's actually at the Helsinki Academy of Fine Arts. So he does all sorts of installation art, particularly like kind of sculptural work. His work in uh, Norway just recently has been kind of going into forested areas and coming up with like large sculptural structures just based on like found items in a forest. Um, I think that when he comes here, obviously he's going to find much different uh, uh, sort of found or ready-made items. So I'm really curious to see um, the differences in the work that he's going to make here from the work that he's making, like I say, in kind of a beautiful, mossy Scandinavian forest. It's quite a, quite a contrast. I'm remembering that the Mark's artist in residency program does have a component of um, engaging with the community. Do we know anything about plans for that? Schedule is still to be determined, but um, anyone interested can follow along. Usually the best place is going to be in the Mark's newsletter at moabarts.org. You can start accessing that. Um, you know, he's going to come here and the the uh, concept for his July residency is play as power. So I'm sure that there's going to be some really interesting and experimental ways that Moab residents and visitors can can interact and, and hopefully create something themselves. Maggie McGuire, editor at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's the Weekly News Reel, where we check in with reporters on their latest coverage of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and KZMU News Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.